When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to The Shift, the podcast that aims to tell the no-holds-barred truth about being a woman post-40. Created and hosted by me, journalist and author Sam Baker. The phrase force of nature was created to describe this week's guest. Egyptian-American journalist Mona El-Tahawi has been fighting back and refusing to shut up for the best part of 50 years. She has been assaulted and detained in Tahir Square, banned from an Australian TV network, and she has made it her business to be the scourge of the pale, male and stale everywhere. So I've become this especially loud, in-your-face, fuck you feminist because I don't want to teach girls and queer people and anyone who reads me that manipulation is how you survive patriarchy. I want to teach them that we look patriarchy in the eye and say, fuck you, I will destroy you. That's how we survive patriarchy. In her fierce and fearless new book, the Seven Necessary Sins for Women and Girls, Mona tackles head-on all the things girls are taught from an early age and encourages us to stick two fingers up to the lot of them. She doesn't want equality, she wants to set us free. Join us as Mona talks anger, perimenopause, ambition, ageing disgracefully, going grey and why she believes it's up to us to decide how we want to emerge on the other side of menopause. Hi Mona, welcome to The Shift. Can you just tell us a little bit about where you are right now, the room that you're in and in Montreal? Sure, I'm basically in a living room that has been turned into this makeshift studio because of the pandemic, because all my public speaking now happens through this computer, this laptop, and I've got lights on to create this TV studio feel. And behind me is a painting by a dear friend of mine, uh, an Iraqi-Canadian artist called Nadine Faraj. And it's a painting of a topless woman. And across her tits is written, there will be millions of us. And this is actually an Egyptian activist who I wrote about in my first book. Her name is Alia El-Mahdi, who became known as the nude blogger because during the year of the Egyptian revolution, 2011, she posed nude in her parents' living room and posted a picture of it on her blog and created more furor an outrage at her act of resistance than when the military 
sexually assaulted female revolutionaries through so-called virginity tests. So I love this and I always have it in the background because it's like a real challenge and fuck you to anyone who wants to control our bodies in any way. It's a real statement of intent, isn't it? I can imagine Instagram will have kittens. <laughs> just be like, oh no, nipples. Oh. <laughs> exactly. And you're also looking so glamorous. I always feel like I use this as an excuse to look like something the cat dragged in, but you're looking very gorgeous. Thank you. You know, this pandemic, I mean, I thought long and hard about emerging from this pandemic. And, you know, I used to have fire red hair. I had fire red hair for eight years. And I thought, you know, I don't want to emerge from this pandemic looking just like I always did, as if there's a quote unquote going back to normal, because there is no normal. Fuck normal, as I keep saying. So I thought, you know, I'm just going to shave all my hair off. It's just grown now. I'm, I'm preparing to shave it all off again this weekend because I want to come out looking scathed. Because we all have to be scathed, because that's the only way that we can dismantle the fuckery of the normal that brought us to this awful stage in our history. Well, it looks absolutely brilliant at the moment. I love it, like really short at the sides and like a cool quiff on top. So grow it back. If you should, I get the shaving off, but grow it back a bit because it looks really cool. Thank you. I read an essay the other day that you wrote about living on the axis of perimenopause and the pandemic, which I absolutely loved because I think it's such a it's such a strange experience isn't it can you talk a little bit about that I'd love to because you know and like I say in the essay to be honest I really did not think and was not expecting and gave very little thought to perimenopause you know some some changes were happening to my body but it's only in retrospect now that I see it as perimenopause and then the pandemic began and you know and I'd be sitting there just so fucking exhausted. I'd be like, oh my God, I have COVID. And I'm like, oh, is it COVID? Is it perimenopause? And, you know, all this talk about how I want to emerge and how we should emerge, it just got me thinking about how the pandemic and perimenopause are really similar in that regard, in that it's this kind of like phase where we're kind of caught between a before and after. And we're emerging from what we used to be and looking towards what we will become. And that's really how I've learned to think of my perimenopause. So it's not to like make a disease or a virus of the perimenopause. Far from it, what I want to do is I want to connect it to this stage in our human history and think, okay, how do I want to emerge from both my perimenopause into menopause? And how do I want to emerge from the pandemic into this next stage? And so it's really helped me to think about this being indoors, being in lockdown, being through this transitional phase. So it's really helped me to link perimenopause and pandemic as a way of thinking, okay, let's emerge and work on how we want to emerge. Because I'm really excited about emerging. I want to survive this. And I'm really excited about what's next on the other side of perimenopause and on the other side of the pandemic. You know, everybody's like talking about rushing back to normal. But like you say, what is normal? There is no normal anymore. What I found with perimenopause and then coming out the other side, it's the perimenopause that's the grim bit because that's the transition bit. And that's the bit where you don't know what the fuck is going on, especially if you weren't expecting it yet or you didn't even really know what to expect anyway. 
Exactly that. You know, I'm really glad to see discussions and policies around period poverty. I love the way that taboos around menstruation around the world are really being confronted now in a way that was impossible to think of when I first started my period, you know, when I was 11 and a half and, you know, decades ago. And I think we need a similar kind of push and a demolition of the taboos and the silences around perimenopause. When women tell me, or anyone who's going through their perimenopause, so someone non-binary, a trans man, or a cis woman, mm-hmm. when they tell me, you know, my doctor just didn't give me a heads up, and then my doctor told me it's because everyone experiences it differently. Yes, I fully see that. But I think the more that we share our experiences and, and put it into the public domain, the more people know that, ah, okay, yeah, I went through that. Just to know what to expect, because mm-hmm. I had no fucking idea. And, you know, I would wake up, every morning for like two years with this crushing sense of anxiety going, what the fuck is happening to me? This is so not me, you know? I only realize now in retrospect that it was this fucking perimenopause. Mm. I mean, like sitting here nodding frantically because it's exactly that, isn't it? And it's because you just don't know any of the symptoms. I mean, I don't know about you, but the only symptom I knew was hot flushes. Yeah. So, you know, it's when that happens that you're like, oh, that's what it is. But that kind of that crushing anxiety. And I think, how did you describe it? Oh, like your mind felt like a car that you were trying to drive with the handbrake on. That's such a good description, but it's exactly what it's like. But nobody tells you that. And that's why I thought, you know, I want to start writing about this because we really need to just kind of like be giving it out. It's almost like, you know, pamphlets for the revolution where we kind of prepare them in some kind of like underground basement somewhere and say, look, look, I want you to know what to expect. Because the least we can do is just just talk. Those of us who have a platform, you know, talk and and say and, and give it a name and give it a word. I mean, it has a name, it's perimenopause. Because every time I tweet about it, there's an, an array of, of people, women, like I said, non-binary people, trans men who come up onto my Twitter feed and say, thank you. Why aren't mm. we talking about this? Um, I was researching a shift about 18 months ago and I saw a tweet. I was sitting there staring at Twitter, as you do. And your tweet popped up where you were saying, you're saying you were en route to menopause and you wanted to mark the change. But you couldn't imagine how much more difficult it would be for a, a non-cis woman who, who hadn't wanted children. And I watched the response like start to pop up I just absolutely loads of them and people saying you know they didn't know and then so many people as well who said even though their child freeness was by choice that they'd experienced a real sense of mourning which I just thought was really one of those tabooy things that nobody tells you what was your experience of that Honestly, when I first started thinking, you know, I want to write something about this stage of life that I'm going through, I'd initially pitched it to an editor. I, I was meeting with an editor at The Guardian very soon after Donald Trump was elected. So I was like, ah, fuck fascism. And then she was like, hey, do you have any ideas? What do you want to write about? I wanted to write a letter to my period because I was still having a, a regular period, but I knew that very soon it would not be regular. And I have been having a period every month of my life since I was 11 and a half. And I thought, you know, this is going to go. And other than my relationship with my parents and my siblings, this is the longest relationship with anything I've had. And I was one of those people who had a period every month. And I was like, what am I going to do when it goes? And that's really when the sadness kind of, you know, struck me. I was like, 
God, you know, I'm going to miss it. I mean, now I'm like, please go, please go. Yes, like, enough. Yeah. My metaphors. When it was still regular, I was like, I really want to mark this. So that's when I started kind of like tweeting and saying, you know, I want some kind of ritual that will help me. I want to write a letter to my period to say, you know, thank you. Thank you for being my companion through life. I, I never like, quote unquote, used you to have, you know, a baby because I knew I wanted to be child free always. But, you know, thank you for accompanying me through life. And I now want to bid you farewell. And I think now with the pandemic, it's become even more urgent to think of rituals and mourning and grieving. And this is going to be the subject of a future essay in that we really have to sit down as not just perimenopausal women now, but as humanity Mm -hmm. and really discuss the immense grief that we are all feeling right now, but very separately because we're all in our atomized spaces. And there is an immense grief that we are not talking about. How are we going to emerge from this, you know? So again, that's why I connect my perimenopause with the pandemic, because it it is grieving, it is mourning, it is saying goodbye to something that we used to be, that I'm tapping into now because it's something I used to be. I'm looking forward to where I'm going, but I'm also grieving where I was. Was the shaving off your hair, which was this kind of spectacular mass of bright red curls, wasn't it? And not red like my kind of like sludgy brown red, but like bright red, crimson. Was that saying goodbye to her for Mamona? It was absolutely, Sam, because, you know, for eight years I had that bright red, fire red hair because that was my way of saying, fuck you, I survived to the Egyptian regime mm-hmm. whose right police broke my arms and sexually assaulted me in November of 2011. And when my arms were both in cast, you know, as a writer, to have your arms, both of them in cast, no. I mean, like, it's almost like you're rendered immobile, you know, like I'm, mm-hmm. I'm disabled temporarily so, you know. So I thought I'm going to give myself the gift of bright red hair and tattoos to celebrate surviving and saying, fuck you, I survived. And I moved back to Egypt too, so they could see me. So I could say, I'm here. You didn't terrorize me away. And I'm here with bright red hair to be found. I'm not hiding. But then the pandemic came along and my perimenopause, I'm full flow now. And I'm at home hiding from a fucking virus. How do you defy a virus? I'm not going to run out there and say, hey, virus, I'm here because I want to (laughs) survive. So I thought, you know, now what I want to do is I want to encourage anyone who sees me, if you can, because it's a privilege, to stay at home so we can survive. So it's like coming at survival from another way now. And so I thought, okay, the way to do that is to film myself. And so I got my beloved to put a camera on as he was shaving my hair off. And I put that video on and you can see me having my hair and I'm like freaking out because, you know, I love my red hair. But that was my way of letting that Mona go and also saying this now is how we will survive by if you have the privilege of working from home please stay at home so that those who don't have that privilege and those who are especially vulnerable also have a chance at surviving so it served many purposes for me but it was also a way of like saying okay this is a new stage of life now and I want to emerge into that stage with a new Mona. Was there a certain amount of it as well that was saying your favorite word fuck you to the the patriarchy about age shaming you? Absolutely, Sam. You know, I I often say everything I do is political. So the way I fuck is political, how I eat is political, how I dress is political. So absolutely. It was my way of saying, yeah, you know, you know me as the woman with the bright red curly hair, but here I am now, everything shaved off. Here I am, just like, here's my scalp, you know? And it was also a way for me to reconnect with my 13-year-old self. And I wrote an essay about this. So I used to have really short hair, 
as a child all the way up through into my mid-20s. My mom cut my hair when I was three years old because I used to cry because of when she was detangling it. And one of my grandmothers said to her, just cut it short. So she did. And one of my aunts, when I was 13, when my family was visiting Egypt, we were living in London at the time, told me that she thought that I was so ugly that my parents would have to pay someone to marry me. That, nice. That, I know, right? That ugly, that ugly girl. I have been unable to look at pictures from that stage of my life for the longest time. And I always believed I was ugly. When I said, I'm going to shave my hair off, and I made a, an announcement on social media, because I live on Twitter, I had to confront ugly because I knew I would look like that girl again and so I, I got the pictures you know I made myself look at those pictures from when I was 13 years old and I was like I don't see anything ugly about this bright-eyed curious intelligent girl who was like looking out into the world you know wanting to know everything so my biggest challenge as well as you know saying fuck the patriarchy here I am I'm, at the time when I shaved off my hair I was 52 I was like here I am a 52 year old woman taking everything off about being conventionally attractive and femininity, but I was also connecting with ugly. And I was going back to that 13-year-old girl and telling her, I see you, I love you, and I'm here to take your hand so we can move together forward to this new stage now. Because she was in the beginning of her you know, adolescence and puberty. So I went to like the start of my puberty so I can hold hands with my 13-year-old self as I now move into my menopause. And I just wanted to have that full circle experience. How much of your work do you think has been informed by that auntie telling you you were ugly at 13? Well, I, I owe my feminism to many things. And I think like half of my feminism is moving to Saudi Arabia when I was 15 years old. And I say that traumatized me into feminism. But the <laughs> other half of my feminism, you know, is my uncles and aunts in my own home, in, in my immediate family. I grew up with parents who met in medical school in Egypt and university education in Egypt is free. And I come from like this solidly middle class background. And my parents met in medical school, it's free education. And they got scholarships from the Egyptian government to move to London to get a PhD in medicine. And very soon after we moved to London, I also got a very early dose of feminism because my English teachers, you know, these white women during the heyday of second wave feminism in the 1970s kept asking me what my dad did and never asked me what my mum did. And I was like, my mum and my dad are doctors and we're here so they can both get their PhDs. So that was like an early lesson in feminism when I was like seven or eight, but I didn't know it because I was so young. I see it in retrospect. But I also know that my feminism when I moved back to Egypt when I was 21 was deeply informed by my aunts and uncles because it was a very different experience than what I had at home. They were much more like conventionally, for lack of a better term, Egyptian in a way that I didn't experience in the day to day in my immediate family. So, for example, my aunts would constantly say to me, you know, I have this really rich guy. You, you're going to love him. He's going to buy you all the jewels you want and take you around the world. And I'd be like, no, because I'm going to take myself around the world. And this guy, he owns this, he owns that. My parents never did that. But my aunts were constantly lining up men for me. I resisted all of them. So they very soon learned to give up. So as well as those English teachers in school in London and Saudi Arabia, I also got lessons in what I didn't want to be from my aunts. Not just the thing that my aunt said to me, but also the ways that they were telling me things like, you know, the way to get a man to do what you want is to make him think that he's the one who decided this. So they were teaching me manipulation. And I was mm. like, no, <laughs> I'm not going to do that. But I understand they were doing that because that's how you survive. That's how you survive patriarchy, you know, whether you're mm. in England or in Egypt or in Zimbabwe. 
You learn tactics to survive. So they were also telling me, the unspoken here was, how do we survive patriarchy? So I've become this especially loud, in-your-face, fuck-you feminist, because I don't want to teach girls and queer people and anyone who reads me that manipulation is how you survive patriarchy. I want to teach them that we look patriarchy in the eye and say, fuck you, I will destroy you. That's how we survive patriarchy. I mean, I had women that I worked with as recently as 10, 15 years ago in offices basically saying, you know, the best way to deal with him is make him think it was his idea. It doesn't matter that it was your idea. Don't worry about that. Don't get hung up on that. He'll sign it off because he thinks it was his idea and then you're fine. And you're like, no, fuck off. I'm not doing that. There are still probably many environments where that still goes on. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I call women like that regardless of where in the world they are. Foot soldiers of the patriarchy. Because, you know, they're policing other women and queer people for the patriarchy. They're putting themselves out there on the front line of this battle. And they should know that foot soldiers are always the first to be killed in battle. So I, so much of what I do is to mitigate against that harm of patriarchy, obviously, because that's the, primarily where the harm comes from, but also from the foot soldiers that it recruits to police those of us who refuse to obey, you know? Oh, gosh, there's so much to talk about. In your book, The Seven Necessary Sins for Women and Girls, and I have keep saying deadly and having to correct myself, really, they're not sins at all, are they? They are things that men are allowed to do that women aren't. Absolutely. They're virtues, if anything. So, yes. So I, I came up with the sins because, you know, people talk about the deadly sins. So I was like, okay, let's take these sins and let, let's make them what they are. Anger, you know, attention, profanity, ambition, power, violence, lust. These are all things we're told we shouldn't want to be or to do. And it's basically, you know, patriarchy's instruction book to us. And my book is the manifesto for defying, disobeying, and disrupting that patriarchy. So absolutely necessary sins. You start with anger, which was really interesting to me because I mean, when I was writing about aging and perimenopause, one of the things that came up again and again, and, and certainly since I've been doing the podcast, nearly every single woman I've spoken to has said, you know, I am right back in touch with my anger now in a way that I haven't been since I was, for some, it's been since they were four or five years old. For others, it's been more like early teens. But that anger is... As they're older, it's more of a tool. It's not out and out deconstructed fury, which I certainly went through a bit of that when I was really perimenopausal. I was reading your book and I was reading, oh, there are, there are so many things. The scene when, you know, 50-year-old Mona beats up her sexual assaulter. And I was thinking as I read it, I bet you anything that 15-year-old Mona wouldn't have had any of the capacity to do that. And yet, four-year-old Mona, and I'd like you to tell the audience a little bit about this, when four-year-old Mona has her first experience of sexual harassment, she's bloody livid. Where does that go? Well, you know, as I say in the book, we are all born with what I call this pilot light of rage. You know, it's like our North Star, you know, like the way that your oven has a pilot light and it's always there and you just light it up fully to get the oven going. We all have that. But patriarchy breaks it in girls. You know, I mentioned research that was done. It's called the Global Early Adolescence Study that was mm -hmm. done in 15 countries around the world. The Global North, the Global South, conservative countries, more liberal countries, you know, across the globe. And they found that by the age of 10, girls had learned and accepted they were weak and vulnerable. So four-year-old Mona comes into this because four-year-old Mona still has this pilot light of rage. And I, I mentioned in the book, I begin the chapter on anger by saying that I was four years old. I was standing 
standing on the balcony of my family's flat. And across the street was my four-year-old friend who was standing on the balcony of her family's home. We're talking to each other, these two little girls speaking, you know, one day during the afternoon. And this man pulls out of a car and flashes us. He pulls out his penis and he beckons for us to come down. And I, as I mentioned in the chapter, I mean, this is fucking outrageous. You're four, for God's sake, pedophile. We were so tiny, Sam, that I had to stand on a chair so that I could look above the, 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 the edge of the balcony to see my friend, you know. And this fucking obscene predator actually beckons for us to come down. Now, four-year-old Nona was so outraged at what he was doing. I, I had no idea what was happening, you know. I mean, like, I don't know what a flasher is, but I understood that something bad was happening. My friend and I were being violated. But more importantly, we were being interrupted. Our afternoon discussion was being interrupted by this piece of shit. So four-year-old Mona just picked up her slipper and just waved it at this man because I fully believed that by waving my little slipper at him, I would frighten him and make him run away. I mean, I love that little girl. I mean, she fully believed that yes, her rage. Cool. <laughs> right? So that rage in that, that four-year-old is that pilot light, you know? And it's completely like blown out by the time we reach the age of 10. And I say in my book, when I was 15, I was sexually assaulted and I froze and I burst into tears. Now, freezing and bursting into tears are very, very normal, natural reactions to sexual assault. So this is not me victim blaming anyone, including myself. But when I was 50 and I discovered, I, I mean, like I had tapped into that rage of four-year-old Mona again. I was like, ah, look at that. Look at that. Look what it takes for us to, to, to relight that pilot light again. So as I say in my chapter, I want to tell, like Ursula K. Le Guin told young women during a graduation speech, I want to tell girls that you are volcanoes and that when you erupt, as Ursula K. Le Guin said, the topography of the world changes. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. 
she told these young women she, that she was speaking to in the graduation speech, you don't know the power that is in you. And that's what my book wants to do. My book wants to remind young girls, young women, and queer people, because my book is also for non-binary and trans people. It's women and girls in the title because it's, it's easy and it's catchy. But I want to tell anyone confronting patriarchy, know the power in you because patriarchy robs it from us. Yeah, it's um, so interesting as I was going through and looking at all of the things that come into, I love your phrase, the attention to detection agency, and that you're basically accused of being attention seeking whenever you want attention, which more than likely is your due. All of these things come into play as you approach puberty. And then it feels like almost that, you know, the hormones do the rest of it. And it really made me wonder what what would the world be like if women grew up with the entitlement of, I don't want to say men, actually, white men. Yeah, exactly that. Exactly. You know, and you often see it on social media now, you know, go out into the world with the confidence of a mediocre white man. <laughs> because yes, you, know, yeah. you see that over and over again, right? Imagine what the world would look like if that four-year-old girl and her rage and her belief that she should be free of sexual harassment, that she should be free of interruption, that no man was entitled to her time or her body or her attention, that the attention belongs to her and she is worthy of attention. Imagine, just like Ursula K. Le Guin says, we would change the map, you know, of what the world would look like. And this is what I want to do with my book. I want it to be like a Molotov cocktail that we throw into like the belly of patriarchy so that we can destroy this map. It's drawn for us because it's basically a straitjacket. It's just ways where it just chips at us, you know, where we just kind of like this at the end, our arms tied behind our back, our mouth taped. It turns us into these kind of like manipulative robots who just do its bidding. And I refuse, I refuse. And, and that's what I want my book to do, to destroy that. I was listening to an interview earlier that you did in Australia. And somebody asked you, as I'm sure you get asked all the time, you know, what about my sons? How do, how do, how do I educate my sons? And they weren't saying, you know, but this is going to be bad for my sons. They were just like, how do I educate them? It made me think, because your book will be read by women and queer people and girls and trans people and aren't the people who need to read it men you know whenever someone asks me that I usually say to them you know I don't care about your sons and I don't care about men because every time we have a conversation about girls and women and queer people someone always comes in and is like what about the boys I'm like yeah. there are books written for boys and there are men out there you know who talk who address patriarchy and say look we have to stop this so but I also know that men are reading my book because they write to me and say they say you know I read your book and I've just bought three copies for my two daughters and for my niece and that delights me it thrills me so I think that you know we are also reaching this stage because of because of social media and because of you know we hear more and more voices of uh, queer people non-conforming people the gender non-conforming communities out there we are also hearing from Several people saying, look, patriarchy doesn't just hurt women. Now, patriarchy is deadly to women, so the harm is different, you know. But they also recognize that patriarchy hurts boys and, and hurts men. So this isn't to appeal to men and boys so that they can stop hurting us. It's so that they recognize that, that they too are not always benefited by patriarchy. Now, patriarchy in its kind of test, textbook definition is, you know, systems of oppression that, that enable male privilege and male dominance. But, you know, which men are privileged and which men get dominance from it? Because as I say in the book and in so many other talks of mine, 
I don't simply want to do what men can do because men are not my yardstick, number one. And I, I actually want something much bigger and more terrifying for patriarchy than equality. I want freedom. And when I say that, I remind men and boys and the mothers of boys who constantly ask me this, that when I say I want something bigger than equality and, and I want freedom, it's because I recognize that men themselves are not free of patriarchy. Because unless you're a very particular kind of man, you're not going to fully uh, benefit from patriarchy. You have to be cisgender. You have to be wealthy. You have to be heterosexual. In many places, you have to be conservative. You have to be able-bodied. So in the UK, you'd have to be basically Boris Johnson and and his cohort. <laughs> You know, and if you're there not, you go. <laughs> there you who go. other than Boris Johnson and these white supremacist fucks, Donald Trump and all these others, who other than them benefit truly from the way patriarchy is set up? You know, my answer rather is, look, I want you to understand that your son, unless he falls within this very narrow definition of what patriarchy wants from him, he too should be a feminist and should read my book. It's like there's a wonderful quote um, in the chapter about power. It's like, I don't want crumbs. I want the whole cake. And I don't even want patriarchy's cake. I want to bake our own. And I often think that when we talk about we need a seat at the table, you know, middle-aged women, older women need a seat at the table, black women need a seat at the table, queer people need a seat at the table. Maybe we don't. Maybe we need a different table. Yeah, maybe we need to destroy that table or walk away from that table and say, you know what, this is my table. Because it will still require of us, you know, that chipping away at us, you know, that image of us being chipped away and confined in some way, because it will still require that I fit the measurements around that table. What if that table, you know, this is kind of like the Goldilocks, you know, what if that table is too big or too small or too confining? Fuck your table and fuck your cake. I want my cake. I see bits and pieces of this now, you know, especially thanks to social media where people are saying, no, we, we don't want this. Remember there was a time when we had this lean in feminism business. I don't, mm -hmm. I, I'm not leaning in anywhere and I don't want to be a CEO and I don't want to be a billionaire. So now what, you know, what is ambition for a working class woman? What is ambition from a woman from the Philippines who goes to Kuwait to work as a domestic worker or as a nurse in a country that is deeply racist, deeply misogynist, and where domestic workers are raped and murdered. They leave their families behind to go and take care of other families. What is ambition there, you know? What is ambition for me who doesn't want a corner office or to become a CEO or a billionaire? So, so absolutely, I want to overturn that table, demolish that table, and say, I don't want your table. I'm going to sit over here. It's like that thing that when you get to a certain point in your career when you've like dutifully climbed the ladder that's been you know built for you by them and and then you look up and you realize that there are no or very very few women I mean it is in terms of seniority but really it's it's more in terms of age it's in terms of you get into your 30s and there are fewer women because they have a child and then they come back or but quite often they have a second or a third and then they don't not all but mm -hmm. many and then you get to 40 and you like they're all gone it's kind of taken me until this point to realize well they're gone from that system because that isn't what they want I mean yes it excludes them but also I mean a friend of mine who's was very successful in the fashion industry you know and she's always saying to me I just don't want to be one of those Dickheads. I could be, but I don't want to be. And I think that's there are two things happening, aren't there? There, one we're being excluded, but another, the other is that we're rejecting it. Absolutely. And I think that those of us who do reject it should phrase it in that proactive way rather than the passive way. Because yes, of course, there's absolutely there is injustice and there's discrimination, and we are kept out. But like you're saying, we are there on our own table because we don't want to have to 
obey the regulations that they they have put in place for us to sit at their table. I think the pandemic now is a great opportunity to ask exactly those questions. You know, whose table was it? And what did you have to do so that you could sit around that table? Who wasn't allowed at that table and who didn't want to be at that table? And we have to focus now, especially because this pandemic is a fucking disaster for women. You know, whatever small crumbs that we were being given before the pandemic, they've completely disappeared. And we're going to lose so many, albeit small steps that we made. And we're seeing it in the United States. Unbelievable numbers of women have been pushed out of the labor force, mostly black, indigenous and women of color in jobs that they will not get back again. And you know who has been able to get their jobs back? Primarily white men and after white men, white women. This is a massive moment now of true upheaval that we have to meet with these difficult questions. The pandemic has also seen the notion that some women do have equality in their homes because the reality is that when those women are working from home and so are their partners, it's their partners who are in the spare room with the door shut and it's the women who are working from the kitchen table constantly doing the homeschooling and like several of my friends have said to me I literally I'm a canteen that is what I'm doing and those people are privileged but at the same time it's all being shown as kind of a sham it really is it's just kind of drawn back this massive curtain that we all pretended we didn't see but it's there And we're seeing all the injustices that existed before have been exacerbated by the pandemic. And that's why, you know, I constantly talk about the pandemic being as this opportunity now to consider, you know, we're all behind these closed doors. When we open the door, what kind of world do we want to emerge into? Because I do not want to return to a world that brought us to this terrible stage that we're at, you know. We had this wave of women getting married who were like, I have a feminist marriage. I want to know how those feminist marriages and partnerships are faring now because it's easy to say it, but how are you living it during this most awful of time in our human history, you know? And I think that's what we're going to learn after all these, you know, ha-ha polls. You know, women have always known that we are the canteen, we are the carers, we are the, the ones who clean up after everyone else and never got anything in return. And now we're truly seeing it because it's happening to the most privileged of women, not just, you know, working class women or women who are disadvantaged. Do you see it improving? Do you see younger women being fiercer, more outspoken, taking less shit than we used to? Well, than I used to when I was 20. Yes, I definitely do. Two examples of that very quickly are, you know, AOC, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in the US. So last year, um, this uh, Republican politician lawmaker called uh, Ted Yoho called her a fucking bitch as she was passing him. Now, you know, this that was not the first time a female politician was called a fucking bitch. For sure, right? But it what she was the first woman in the US Congress who gave a talk about that. And there's an incredible video where you can listen to her 10-minute talk. It is beautiful. It's a great example of feminist rhetoric, you know? And I wrote an essay about her because she also did an Instagram live about how she thought she was going to be killed during the insurrection on January the 6th. So I, 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 I call her the disruptor because I think that what AOC is doing is something that women of our generation, Sam and older, were told not to do, which is to show and to live out power and vulnerability together. So yes. we were told, right? We were told never show weakness, never show your vulnerability, always be powerful, meet the boys where they are. And she's yes. like, oh, 
right? And I think this truly is what is revolutionary about younger women. They are saying, you know what? I am vulnerable. I was scared I was going to die. Let me tell you why. It's because of you, white supremacist patriarchy, and I'm going to fucking destroy you. I see that. I'm like, my God, yes, the future looks so good. But at the same time, I also don't want to romanticize women just because of the virtue by being women. Because I often say, I don't support a woman just because she's a woman. I support a woman who's dismantling patriarchy rather than upholding patriarchy. So I see AOC, and I believe she's dismantling patriarchy. So AOC is about 31, 32. There's a Republican um, representative called Lauren Boebert, who's just a year or two older than AOC, and she's the fucking antithesis. She's constantly posing with guns. She is a fascist fuck. She was she was encouraging the insurrectionists. She's like, I walk around with my gun because no one's ever going to touch me again. I'm all for like self-defense. I beat the fuck out of that man in the bar, you know? But you know that Lauren Boebert wouldn't want Ilhan Omar to be carrying a gun. She's, she's already complaining that Ilhan Omar wears a headscarf and she compares her gun to Ilhan Omar's Headscarf, do you know what I mean? So these are two young women who are the opposite of each other. So young women who are dismantling patriarchy, yes, they're the future. Yeah, it just it really makes me think that, you know, the we were taught like be more like a man. You know, if you wanna you wanna play with the boys, be more like a boy. You know, don't say that you've got the heaviest period since the last heavy period and you're in chronic pain and just kind of keep that maternity leave thing down to a minimum and and of course, then you're not going to talk about menopause because it's just another thing that women are doing wrong. So with luck, this is like the start of the conversation. And by the time, you know, AOC gets to be perimenopausal. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone knows what perimenopause is. <laughs> I really think that is exactly the reason that we don't know more than we do about perimenopause, Sam. I really do, because we've always been told, don't talk about these things, don't show weakness. It's not weakness to talk about these things. This is this is our body. This is our life. This is the changes that we go through. And it's power. It's power to, to claim and own that vulnerability, that change, that transition. And I, I really, really hope that the more we talk about this, the more we break that silence around it. There is no shame. The shame is in what silenced us in the first place let's go to the questions that I always ask at the end uh what is your emotional age Mona you know if you'd asked me this about five or six years ago I would have said 16 because 16 year old me just went through so much but I think now I'd probably say like 23 to 27 around that age because I think my 20s were full of so much upheaval so I'd, I'd be like I'm a 20 something year old that's my emotional age because that, I think that decade set so much of what I am now you know it was like 10 years and I squeezed into those 10 years like almost four decades and and <laughs> I think that kind of like set me off so I'm really grateful to Mona in her 20s because she put up with a lot <laughs> and she, she also she went to China for the UN women's conference and you know plugged me into this global sisterhood of, of and comrades of feminism. So I'm somewhere in my 20s. Um, recommend a book that has, well, it can be a book that's meant a huge amount to you, or it can just be a book you read recently, which is really great. Well, a book that I always go back to again and again, and because I, I so value uh, June Jordan, this Black 
bisexual poet and feminist intellectual whose words I have tattooed on my skin. One of her poems is called Poem for South African Women, and I have tattooed into my skin, We Are the Ones We Have Been Waiting For. So I love June Jordan's poetry, but I also love June Jordan's essays. And I have a collection of her essays, an anthology of her essays called Some of Us Did Not Die. And I love those essays because June Jordan is like this activist who writes about her personal life and connects it to the revolution in Nicaragua, connects it to Palestine, connects it to why the fuck aren't we all feminists, and is also this incredible (laughs) bisexual poet who has poems of love and desire and lust for men, for women, all of it. And I'm especially thinking of that book now because I do want to write more about grieving during this, this pandemic. And this title, Some of Us Did Not Die, she called a talk that she gave at the University of New York three months after the 9-11 attacks. Some of us did not die. And she was quoting a Holocaust survivor who said, for those of us who did not die, what do we owe? What is our obligation to those who did die and were killed? And, And that's really on my mind these days. You know, what do we owe those who were killed by COVID so that we can ensure the world that failed them in that way is not the world that we emerge into. So June Jordan, some of us did not die. I think there's such a huge amount to be thought about and written on the process of grief and mourning what you lost, but then embracing what comes next. Yeah, yeah. And and for the survival, you know, and and looking at survival as a celebration, you know, the joy of surviving. I'm, I'm really glad I'm still alive. Yes, let's talk about grieving and mourning what we've lost, but let's also as an obligation to those who did not survive, fully embrace surviving as an act of joy and celebration. That's brilliant. Thank you. What advice would you give younger women? To find a way every day to practice what I call feminism in 3D. And feminism in 3D is defy, disobey, and disrupt the patriarchy. And to think of ways, no matter how small, of defying, disobeying, and disrupting the patriarchy as kind of ways of lifting weights, you know, because often younger women or younger queer people too will say to me, well, how do I do this? You know, like, I can't just go out on the street. I'm not a revolutionary or whatever. And I say to them, look, I wasn't born, you know, I didn't come out of my mother's womb yelling, fuck the patriarchy. You know, it's like, it's a process, (laughs) you know? So those 3Ds, are like lifting weights. You know, you begin with a small weight and then you kind of like graduate to bigger weights. So I think when you do the 3Ds every day, as often as you can, you build your feminist muscles. And that's what I would advise them. Feminism in 3D. Um, How do you do it? How will you do it today? Well, sometimes it's as simple as finding a piece of misogynist shit on Twitter and saying, fuck you. And then like, I see a whole string of people going in there and telling him, fuck you. I mean, that's serious. I'm not diminishing that because that keeps a lot of younger women, especially off of social media. It helps, I believe, for them to see an older woman saying, fuck you. I will not be diminished in any way. Here I am. But it also can be, you know, sometimes I get requests to speak or to write for free. You know what? So my, you know, I deserve not just attention, but I deserve to be paid for my work. So that too. So there are like myriad ways that we can practice feminism in 3D. So it just depends on, you know, the day. But I know every day will require one of the Ds. Great. Name an old bird role model. Let's see. I, there's so many, you know. Like because I've recently started wearing this kind of glasses and, you know, I always wear big jewellery. People tell me, 
Iris Apple, I think her name is. Yeah, yeah. your glasses are quite like her. Right? Yeah. And I love her because she's like, I don't know, 95 or something. So I celebrate Iris because she just like, she loves life. Glasses, hair, jewelry, clothes, everything about her is just glorious to look at. Iris Apple right now is just like, I'm, I'm really, really admiring her. Uh, what's your superpower? You know, I think my personality is my superpower. Yes. Yeah. I knew you would say that. I knew you would. <laughs> you know me, Sam. My going around <laughs> saying, fuck you and fuck the patriarchy. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I remember that one. <laughs> and lastly, in the spirit of profanity, how many fucks do you give? So because it means so many things now, I give all the fucks and I give zero fucks. So I'm like, if you think that there is anything holding me back from telling you to fuck off. You know, so it's like in every aspect of it. So I, I remember Selena got and told you she gives all the facts because she cares a lot. And I really, I, 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 I was sitting and nodding like this because I'm, I'm a very earnest and sincere person. I don't have a cynical bone in my body. So I give many, many facts. But at the same time, I give zero facts about any misogynist shit who think that I should be polite or I should behave or I'm an attention whore. I'm like, fuck you. Yes, I'm a whore of every kind. Now what? <laughs> so that's how I give zero fucks. Why is it always that word? Why is it always a whore? I think because of the power of shame, sex and shame. And it's always about genitals. When I talk to trans friends and they talk about just how often they're asked about their genitals. It's disgusting and it's transphobic and it's shameful. And I think it's that tapping into the shame because they know that we've been socialized to be easily shamed. So one of the things I do in the book is like, you know what? No shame here. Zero fucks in that regard. So yes, I'm a whore. <laughs> Bring something yeah. else because that's not going to work. That's brilliant. Thank you so much. I think this book is going to be so popular. And now you need to write the one for the old birds. Yes, perimenopause has given me that fuel, Sam. Yes. Yeah. Thank you so much, Mona. Thanks so much Thank for you. having me. It was, it was a pleasure to talk with you, Sam. Thank you. Thank you for listening. You can hear a new episode of The Shift each Tuesday on Acast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please do rate, review and follow because it really does help other people find us. And if you'd like to know more about my own experience of shifting, my book, The Shift, How I Lost and Found Myself After 40 and You Can Too, is out now in paperback. See you next time. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com